It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So this is uh, part six. This is the end of the second week. Uh, we started a series two weeks ago, uh, Monday, and I, I've, I've already caught the vision for it at a very deep level. Sometimes it takes me a little to, to get warmed up in a series, but I, I got into this one pretty quickly, and it's a harder one. Like, if I, if I could say the difference between World War II and World War I, it's just that World War I is so complex, it is so hard to explain, it, makes, it puts this burden on me as a communicator to somehow try and make sense of something that is actually rather irrational, too. And... So it's a hard thing to enter into, but I, I have some momentum. In fact, I'm going a lot slower with my momentum than I would have guessed. If you look at my original map, I should have already, uh, today would have been uh, the Battle of the Marne, uh, which is a huge event in World War I. I'm not, I don't even feel close to it. And I'm in session six, and that's because there's a deepening process. The same thing happened in the series on World War II. If you, if you heard me in the very beginning of the World War II series, I was like, so I've mapped out, you know, maybe about 15, 20, and I, you know, I, I actually, maybe 24. And then as, as it's going along, yeah, I maybe have like 30, what, 93 episodes later. And even that, I was cutting it off saying, because uh, I mean, how, why everyone was mad at me for not going to 100. But we were ending a training season, and it just felt weird for me just to keep going with this, because so much of it was the momentum of the, of the, the audience, too. So for those that are getting this via podcast, we just started a semester two weeks ago as well. And so that's what's really enjoyable about the training season that we have over the summer and a Daily Thunder series. Nathan started his Soul Drift series, and I started this series. And it's really fun. You guys get to be a part of it. Everyone else is like struggling out there to stay up with all the content that just starts gushing out of Ellerslie. And, uh, but it's been really rich uh, for me, and it's uh, like this particular message wasn't in my original map. And yet I've been, it, they, what happens is I'm going through these stories over and over and over again. And it's because I just sort of review the war many times. Like when I was going through World War II, one of my key uh, framework points to create a chronology was uh, Winston Churchill's memoirs from World War II, of course, being the prime minister of Great Britain. It's an incredible perspective, an amazing book. But, you know, it's a very, very thick book, and I think I went through it three or four times, you know, so it's a, it was a massive amount of, uh, of review of what took place, but then when you match that with your biblical study, it's very interesting to see how God will snag me on different moments, you know, like my, my, pant, uh, my pant leg gets caught on something, I'm like, uh, am I supposed to pause here? And that's the way I feel with this particular one is it's like my pant leg got caught on it as I was walking through, just expecting to, you know, go by it, and hey, we, we have the uh, invasion of Belgium, all right, now we're going to move forward. And yet, this one stopped me, and I had to step one sort of step backwards to the side to say, okay, I feel like this is important to enunciate. And it's called the, inex the inexorable force. Uh, every now and then I want to introduce a word because the word itself has a certain punch and it has value. We lose words like sand through a sieve in our culture today because, you know, vocabulary, the intelligence of a society is oftentimes measured by its vocabulary and the intelligence of our society has been decreasing very quickly, which means we lose words. And words contain ideas. 
And it doesn't mean there's not synonyms. Uh, that, that's, that's definitely true. However, words are really fun. So every now and then we have to introduce a new word. And I'm not saying you don't know inexorable. It's just a really good word. And it fits this message uh, tremendously well. And it comes from a quote that is described in World War I. So I felt like I could use it. So inexorable, impossible to resist, impossible to stop. So when something is inexorable, it cannot be said. It's the freight train coming down, and here you are, you know, if someone said, hey, can I stop that train? Uh, no, it has an inexorable movement. If you try and jump in front of it on the tracks, it will not be stopped. It is unable to be resisted. So Helmuth von Moltke, uh, isn't that a great picture? He is, he, at the very beginning of World War I, he is the one who is implementing what we have defined in the previous uh, sessions as the Schlieffen plan. So this is the grand plan, der Tag, the day uh, to the Germans, and they are going to unleash this war to hit France, and they have 950 hours to reach Paris and to get France, okay, which is uh, roughly 39 days plus, because on the 40th day, they want to be swinging their uh, focus on Russia to defend their eastern side, because that's how long their military analysts have determined it's going to take Russia to get into operation. It's big colossus to get sort of up from the bed and start walking towards the borders of Germany on the east. 950 hours. And so this is the guy that's over the military movements. He's the commander-in-chief, the way we would say it here in America, of the armed forces. And they have pushed the mobilization button. Oh no, the doomsday device has been unleashed. And so... And if you know the German marching, they have that uh, goose-stepping, too. And they look just sort of mean, even as they're marching. And it's just this perfect system that is polished. And the amount of effort that they have put into training the mechanics of their troops is shocking to the other nations. And so August 1st, 1914, the invasion of Belgium is... August 4th, just to give you some context here. Remember the, the shot that is going to be heard around the world, you know, Gavrilo Princip shooting Archduke Franz Ferdinand, June 28th. Austria-Hungary declaring war on Serbia, you know, Serbia since that's where Gavrilo Princip was from, Archduke Franz Ferdinand's from Austria-Hungary, that's going to be July 28th. And so this is, uh, that. then Russia is going to mobilize and Germany is going to declare war on Russia. And so then... Behind the scenes, Germany is beginning their mobilization. They don't want to tell anyone. They're just, they push their button and mobilization begins towards Belgium. And the reason Helmut von Molke has this quote that is up on the screen, you know, because if you're in the room here, you can see what the quote is. If you're getting this via podcast, you can't see it, which is part of the fun. You know, that it gives a benefit to those that are present, right? You can take peeks at things. But he's going to say the words, it can't be done. Technically, his statement was, it cannot be done. And what he's responding to is a very, very specific thing that is to reverse the course of this marching horde of millions. You see, our guy, William II, remember this guy? He's typically in history known as Kaiser Wilhelm II. And he's the emperor, the Kaiser meaning Caesar. He's like the king of Germany. And he is suddenly going to have doubts. As, he, as they push the mobilization button, he has this idea that comes from a certain discussion with the ambassador to Great Britain that 
Great Britain would not get in, and they can keep France out, and they could have a one-front war against Russia. And so he wants to talk to Moltke to say, can we stop our military machine now that we've pushed the button? All right, now you guys have some context for this statement. Now do you understand my title? The inexorable force, the unstoppable force. Something has begun that cannot be resisted now. And what Moltke is going to famously say is it can't be done. So now I'm going to liken this because there is an element in our life that is going to parallel with this, which is why when I'm walking by this story, my, uh, my pant leg gets snagged on it because it catches something and enunciates something that I think is very, very important for us to bring to the surface. And it's a very, very significant part of our war campaign against the devil as the church. So the impulse of sin, there is a part of us that is like this whole operation of destruction that is going to be waged against Belgium and France, which is ultimately going to bring in a catastrophe, a world war crisis with everyone else. And it's like this. You push a button and something begins. This movement of evil has begun. Now, for us, it's, it's not a whole bunch of marching, goose-stepping Germans. It's the flow of a sinful pattern. Have you ever noticed that when sin begins to move in your life in a certain direction that it just sort of has a strength to it and it starts goose-stepping in its own way? And it's like, yeah, it cannot be stopped. It's too bad, but we can't turn this around. It is too powerful. So here's the question, the impulse of sin. Can I stop it? Because that's, that's what William II is asking. Can I stop it? it? No, it can't be done. It's an inexorable force. Okay, now one of the things I just want to lay out is, is that true? Because that's what we feel, but if we're going to line up our characters, remember the three that had to walk the ridgepole? You know, we have fact, faith, and then experience, and they're all called to walk the impossible. And fact is able to do it. He's just, he's of course, a symbol of Jesus Christ, the truth, and he's able to pull off the impossible. Faith has to make a decision. Is he going to follow fact, or is he going to heed his experience? If he follows fact, he gains balance and is able to pull off the impossible. But experience is very loud. And right now in your life, if I ask you that question, can sin be stopped? Your experience can give a great dissertation on all that you've gone through in your life to prove that it cannot be. It's an inexorable force. And yet the facts actually say something quite different. So this is a story I've shared over the years. I've shared it with a lot of men to try and give enunciation of a key shift in my life. Because I wasn't groomed with Ellerslie training, and it's not that I wasn't given good training, it's just that I didn't understand the power to do it. And so you can have good theology without power, and it's not that you can't be right and correct in your doctrine, but oftentimes you can't live it out. And it's a very frustrating thing to know that you're supposed to have a peace that passes all understanding, to know that your joy is supposed to be full, to know that you're supposed to love your enemy and we, when he strikes you on one cheek to turn to him the other also, but have no ability to do it. 
So you don't have peace that passes understanding. Crisis is going on in your life and you're riddled with anxiety and fear. And instead of having a joy that is full, you have a frustration that is full, an anger or even a hatred that is full. And instead of having a love for your enemy, and when you get slapped on one cheek, you ball up your right fist and bonk him in the nose. It's like, ah, uh, that isn't what I'm supposed to be doing, is it? And you could even agree, that isn't the way I'm supposed to live. But there is something that controls you that is greater than your will to overcome it. The secret to Christianity is not willing your way to good behavior. It is not willing your way to good action, to good attitudes, to good words spoken. It is submitting by faith and saying, God, I can't do this, but I know you can. And when God is able to move in and do the work inside of us, everything changes. And so I didn't get trained in that. I had a very high view of Scripture. I believed it. I believed what it said. And I believed it was calling me to live a life. And I just, here was my, my failures. I believed that if it called me to live that life, I obviously could. You see, see the challenge in my logic there? Is it's calling me to live a life, which means I believe I can do it, which is partly correct. Oh, Eric, you can do it, but not the way you think. You see, you can do it, but in and of your own strength, you can't do it. That sounds funny. It's like, what? That sounds like a contradiction. Either I can or I can't. Okay, you, Eric, apart from God, can't. But you, Eric, in Christ, can. And I could look back at you and go, what? What did you just say? It sounds like, because you still have to understand what it means to give up your life and the controls and to give those to God and let him have you. And when you begin to gain that understanding, it begins to make sense where I can say things like that and some of you can nod along and go, I know exactly what you mean, Eric. So grabbing a hold of the banister, and I have a sub-statement under it, while the words of Helmuth von Moltke ring in my soul's ears, it can't be done. So I grew up in a Christianity that said, that a man has certain impulses that he cannot overcome, and they just rule him. And we just try and temper them. So a man just tries to avoid certain situations and not put himself in certain situations because he is controlled by something. And this is, this is in the church. This is what I was taught in the church, is that I will always, in a sense, be ruled by sin. However, I will try not to give way to it because I want to please God. Now, it wasn't said always that bluntly. However, it was hinted at all the time. You get your little side group of men, and they get together, and you talk about it. It's like, oh, yeah, it's too bad when you do this, but just confess it, and just, you know, make it right, and then God cleanses. And so you have this cyclical pattern of defeat, you know, where you're trying your hardest to avoid it, and then you go back under the wheel, and then you're like, oh, okay, I think I got this. And then you even think about writing a book about your success, and then you go back under. And it's a very, very frustrating way to live but I believed that God had a different pattern. I believed that God intended victory and triumph because I'm reading about it in scripture, but I didn't have it in my pockets. I was like, God, how come I can't do this? And so I'm gonna give a situation from a long time ago where uh, there was a breakthrough in my life. Have you ever had it where you start moving in the direction of sin? Now I'm gonna put in this story something that was wrong for my soul was downstairs in this dark uh, chamber of the house. And 
I was in bed and I got up and there was that impulse to like, I need to go downstairs. It was like a draw, a pull, a magnet. And every other time that magnet had begun to pull me, it just, it wins. It's like, yeah, victory for the magnet. Boom, like that. And it's almost like I don't have a say. And I start, you know, you sort of picture the cartoon version, must go to magnet. And so you're moving down the hall, this is Eric, and I get to the top of the stairs, where there's this, you know, banister that goes down into this dark zone down there. And I didn't want to go down. You ever had that where you want to, but you don't want to? That's because you have a battle inside. You have flesh and an old system that is desiring to give way. And you have a new man that has been awakened that has a different opinion about it. But this new man has to gain control. It's like, don't go down there. But he has to gain control of the steering wheel. And so my old man seemed to still have the steering wheel. It's like, get, get out of here, Jesus. Get out of here. We're still going to do it our way. I didn't want to go down there. So here's, here's what happened in my story. I didn't know how these things worked. I just knew that God must have a solution to this. So I grabbed the banister. And yes, I did have the words of Helmuth von Molka in my head, it can't be done. There is no way to stop this. This is an inexorable force. And I clung to that banister and I said, Jesus, I believe that you have a solution. And I believe it is not your intent that I go down. But I don't know what that is and I don't know how it works. But here I am and I will not let go of this banister until I figure it out until you give it to me, until I find it. And I don't know how long it was. It could have been a shorter time than an hour. I've always sort of had an hour in my mind. But you know how time goes, in, it's weird when you're, in, when you're in modes like that, where it seems like forever. And I went back to bed. And I didn't understand at the time what was taking place. I didn't understand that what I was getting was grace, according to the Bible. I was getting power to resist. Power to change direction. I didn't understand the terminology for it, but I knew God had given me something. And as a result, what happened in Eric was, uh, you know, as it says in World War II of America, uh, being awakened from their slumber by the bombing of Pearl Harbor, a sleeping giant awakened. Because suddenly Eric was convinced that God intervenes in this situation. He has power over sin. I know that's what it says in Scripture, but now I know it. I know it experientially. I have tasted it. Oh, watch out, devil. Once, this, once the saints of God begin to taste that and to recognize that, that's a big deal. But when you grow up in a church that just subsists and just subsides into silence when sin starts making its move, it's very difficult to stand up against it when no one else around you is. And it's very difficult to cling to a banister for something that Helmut von Moltke is saying will not come. It's impossible, Eric. It cannot be stopped. So one of the best illustrations that I have for it, have you ever noticed that there's certain situations in your life where you just can't stop it? It's, it's, it has too much force to it. And the, the classic illustration is the wedding day where you've people from all over the world have come in, you know, people that love you and care about you. Tons of money has been spent. I mean, if you're the woman, your dad has dished out, what, eighty dollars to $100,000 for this wedding, and, you know, everything's just perfect. And you have 
the thought that I am not supposed to marry this person. <laughs> I mean, come on, couldn't you have had that thought a little earlier than this? Oh, you did have the thought, but there was an inexorable force that has brought you to this day. What should you do? Okay, I, I don't even really want to give counsel on that, lest I have all these dads that are like, you, you counseled my daughter. You know, I, I, in other words, hopefully you can make this decision long before that day, right? However, it's a great picture of saying, should you go and get married and enter into covenant with someone you know you shouldn't, or should you risk the fallout of making a hard decision? And that's what we have in this story in World War I. We have an inexorable force, or what looks like one, and William II, which we've already studied, we have a whole message called the insecurity of William, and all of our hearts have bled for poor little William. I, I call him little. I don't know exactly how tall he was. I probably should get a measurement before I call him little, but I picture him as little, you know, and I picture him as a little man, like a little boy in a king's job. That's, that's my entire impression of him, and he well, I'll go into it, okay? I'll, I'll give you a little more insight into William, and your heart will continue to bleed for him, but I'm going to put you in the William role today. You know how I'm always sticking you in one of the positions? You're William II today. So it's your wedding day, and you realize this whole thing is wrong. While the words of Helmuth von Moltke ring in your soul's ears, it can't be stopped. It can't be done. You cannot stop this sort of movement. Look at all that has happened. You cannot say no now. The key has been turned in the mighty German military machine, while the words of Helmuth von Moltke ring in the German emperor's ears. It cannot be done. So here's our Europe in 1914. For those of you that have not seen this uh, before, the reddish, purplish colored ones are the central powers. Germany at the top, uh, the, it looks like the, the head of a horse with its mouth going, nay, uh, open. And then uh, the blue ones are the triple entente. And you'll notice that Germany has been feeling very encircled. And that's one of the terms that they've been used. Everything is, so they call the war a necessity. Even though technically they have nothing to do with the war. I mean, when, uh, when Austria uh, calls for war against Serbia, they don't have to get involved. But because Russia is mobilizing and they have a treaty with Austria, they're looking for any excuse to get into the war. Because they want to deal with their encirclement problems. They feel it is a necessity, and they believe that they deserve world domination. I've gone through that at least at a certain level. The philosophers in Germany, Germany is a superior race. It is a superior people. It is of a higher intellect. It is of a higher order. It is of a higher health. And as a result, it should be the one to rule over Europe. Now, it is a very arrogant position, uh, granted. However, you're going to see that that same position is going to carry into Hitler's mindset in World War II. And so this mindset is the start of World War I, and ironically, the start of World War II. So we had talked uh, in the last message about the underestimating of Al Albert, uh, the king of the Belgium, Belg Belgians. One of the hardest words, if you ever teach on World War I, just be watchful for the term Belgium. And then when you talk about someone from Belgium, they're a Belgian so you go from an M to an N behind it. It is, it is very confusing, okay? You talk about the Belgium king. Is it more correct to say the Belgian king or the Belgium king? I mean, isn't that a funny statement? Well, it's the king of Belgium. So I wouldn't say the king of Belgian. 
So wouldn't it be the Belgium king? No, it's the Belgian king. Oh boy, well, my, my, I have smoke coming out of my ears, right? So just beware. When you teach your course on uh, World War I, just be watchful for that. So Germany is headed uh, straight towards that star. But to get there, they are going to violate Belgian neutrality and swing down like a, uh, like a sledgehammer in 950 hours and capture Paris. Okay, so this is the big movement that they have just pushed the mobilization button to accomplish. And that's going to create a ripple effect. What some people would say is the worst decision of any nation, maybe in all of history, was Germany's decision to invade neutral Belgium. Okay, so in other words, we're dealing not with a small issue in history, we're dealing with a major issue in history which is going to have dominoes fall for the next hundred years. So this is Barbara Tuckman uh, from the book The Guns of August, which by the way is a very stirring book. The way that Barbara Tuckman writes is almost poetic, and it's very Churchillian if, you're used to, if you've ever read Churchill where it has a certain romance to it, and it's, it's epic. So it, it does something very special in my soul where I almost have to just pause and read the paragraph again. Not because I didn't understand it, but because I just want to hear it again because I love words, and she is very, very good with words and articulating what is taking place. Once the mobilization button was pushed, the whole vast machinery for calling up, equipping, and transporting two million men began turning automatically. Reservists went into their designated depots, were issued uniforms, equipment, and arms, formed into companies and companies into battalions, were joined by cavalry, cyclists, artillery, medical units, cook wagons, blacksmith wagons, even postal wagons, moved according to prepared railway timetables to concentration points near the frontier. So that zone uh, at Belgium down to the French border is called the frontier. So it moved according to prepared timetables to concentration points near the frontier where they would be formed into divisions, divisions into corps and corps into armies ready to advance and fight. This is amazing. Just to think about, if they have 40 divisions, okay, just to give you this concept, the Germans have 40 divisions. This is massive. Never has this large of an army been mobilized. One army corps alone, out of the total of 40 in the German forces, required 170 railway cars for officers. That's just officers. 170 railway cars. 965 railway cars for infantry, 2,960 railway cars for cavalry, 1,915 for artillery and supply wagons, 6,010 in all. That's just one of the 40. You start doing your math on that, and I've never heard of so many railway cars. That's just railway cars. 6,010 in all, grouped in 140 trains and an equal number again for their supplies. So that's just for the materials, but not the like food and supplies. So that's 12,000 per Army Corps times 40 train cars. 140 trains, you know, times, uh, well, 280, I should say, times 40 is how many trains you need to have just to bring all of this to the front. Okay, I'm starting to get stressed out. You know, if, if you're in the military, this is called logistics. And logistics have never been as important until the modern war period. And this is modern war now, where you're dealing with massive amounts. Instead of having 8,000 men to go fight for one day, 
Well, when you're just fighting for one day, you know, you can grab a chicken on the way up out of so-and-so's farm. But when you're fighting for four years, where do you get food for that many? How do you supply for this? How do you keep ammunition? You know, when the Russians go off to war, they're like sharing guns amongst like four guys. And it's like you have one shot a day. I mean, that's like not healthy. Uh, But how do you keep the supply when your country has to now produce enough of this material to supply its logistics, okay? So if this stresses you out, you may not want to get into military logistics. From the moment the order was given, everything was to move at fixed times according to a schedule precise down to the number of train axles that would pass over a given bridge within a given time. Okay, so who has masterminded this? Moltke. He has stressed over this for years. He's a very stressed out guy, too. So you could just imagine the tension that is going to come when William II decides that he may want to change all of this. So the players in the story. So we have the power of mobilization, the German military machine. There's the goose stepping in the picture. Or what we're going to call the inexorable force. Okay, That's going to be likened to the power of sin, your sinful propensity in your life. Then we have William II, the German emperor. He's known as a Kaiser, but since that's not a term we oftentimes use, which is Caesar, or in Russia they call it a czar, uh, he's the decision maker. This is us in the story. Okay, now I know you might feel a little uh, you know, put off by the fact that I just made you uh, the emperor of Germany. You're like, excuse me? However, there are some similarities in the story between us and William. And here's Helmuth von Moltke, the chief of the great German general staff. Isn't that quite the title? Let me read it again. Chief of the great German general staff. They have to call it the great German general staff. It can't be just chief of the German general staff, but they have to call it the great German general staff. That's what we should call our staff at Ellerslie. Uh, <laughs> the great Ellerslie staff. Isn't that, that's a, I like the ring of that. I saw Sarah back there winking going, yeah, that's, I like that too, Eric. So Kaiser Wilhelm II, also known as, I've been typically calling him William II, the decision is vested in him. You see, you are a unique player in this drama called life. And that is that you can't blame the decisions that are made in your life just on your parents, on your society, which we always try and do. We try and play the victim. It's like, hey, I had no choice in it. And we try and blame it on our governments. And there's all sorts of things that are you know, we, we could say, oh, God made me do it, or the devil made me do it. There's all sorts of different things that we've tried to whip out over the years. You know, Adam said, the woman made me do it, right? Uh, we have all sorts of different excuses or self-justifications, but technically, let's get down to brass tacks. You're responsible for what's going on in your life. And ultimately, in the judgment day, you are held accountable for what took place. Now, that doesn't mean that you're responsible for what someone else did to you, you're responsible for how you respond to what someone else did to you. And that might seem unfair and unjust until you recognize that Jesus has given you everything to be able to correct all of the wrongs, the misbehaviors, the wrong responses, and to begin to respond correctly moving forward, which is an incredible solace to the soul, but you need Jesus to really bring that to light. Uh, more cosmopolitan, oh, this is Barbara Tuckman speaking of William II, okay? This is a great description. 
more cosmopolitan and more timid than the archetype Prussian. Remember how Napoleon said uh, Prussians seem to be, uh, have born, been born out of a cannonball. I think that was the way he said it. Uh, and so the typical Prussian is very military-oriented and like wanting to destroy anyone that stands in their way. And what Barbara Tuckman is describing William II as is more cosmopolitan, more timid than that. That William had never actually wanted a general war. He wanted greater power, greater prestige, above all more authority in the world's affairs for Germany, but he preferred to obtain them by frightening rather than by fighting other nations. He wanted the gladiator's reward without the battle, and whenever the prospect of battle came too close, he shrank. So they push the mobilization button and everything's starting to move and the goose stepping, starting the trains are starting to roll. And there's a, a beam of light that comes into his world via the, you know, the back channels, the foreign office. And they say that basically there is an option here, that you could fight this as a one front war against Russia. You don't have to go through, Brussels, or through Belgium, awaken the ire of the world potentially, awaken uh, Great Britain, uh, actually potentially have Belgium resistance and then have to fight against France, who is one of the most powerful military forces in the world, and risk losing. If you don't do this in 950 hours, then Germany could crush you on the east, and they're the biggest nation on earth. Are you sure you want to do this, William? You can just imagine his second guessing. What, what's it called? A buyer's remorse when you buy something big? You spend all this money and then you start having second. He's going through buyer's remorse or, you know, push the button remorse. And I think it's a fairly normal thing to probably go through. And so he's beginning to think, we need to reapproach this. Okay, why would, we, why would we do this? I don't really want to go to war. Why would I antagonize the world? Why, would I, why do I have to be the bad guy? Why don't I just be the good guy and just stand up for Austria-Hungary and, you know, do things that normal countries would do? So there we are on the screen. You didn't know you had a handlebar mustache, did you? I don't even know if that's called a handlebar because it doesn't twist, right? I don't know what kind of, that's, maybe it's just a Kaiser Wilhelm uh, mustache. It's a good one though. This is just to give you an idea of how the German mindset works and how William's mindset works and how our mindset could work. Just listen to this quote. I hate the Slavs. Now, uh, that, that's unhealthy. Right, I mean, to, to even say that, but this is, he's, he lacks discretion, guys. He's always, he has so many quotes that he probably wishes he could delete, but he can't delete them because he just says them. And there are so many I could be putting up on the screen. It's like, oh boy, you said that? Oh, you said that? And you said that? And that's what his, all his leadership are saying. Don't say that. People remember. People write it down in history books. And they did. And so this is what he said uh, to an Austrian officer. I hate the Slavs. I know it is a sin to do so. We ought not to hate anyone, but I can't help hating them. Right there, you could circle that last statement and you would understand what is happening even in this story. But I can't help it. But I can't help it. That mentality will kill you. But I can't help it. You do know that there is a savior, right? If you know something is wrong, do you just, oh, I can't do anything about it? Helmuth von Moltke, the classic pessimist. So this is speaking of Moltke. Tall, heavy, bald, and 66 years old, Moltke habitually wore an expression of profound distress, which led the Kaiser to call him, now I don't know how to speak German and say this, but it's like der Tariq Julius 
or what might be rendered gloomy Gus. That was, so that's what the Kaiser called him. So here's the conversation. August 1st, 1914, the lives of 40 million hang in the balance. Of course, they didn't understand that. They didn't understand the fullness of it. Kaiser Wilhelm, even if they went off to war, thought that they would be back before the leaves fell. In other words, at, ma at max, this is a four-month war. At max. The German uh, parliament or the decision-making body is going to actually vote to remove themselves till, I think it was like November, October, November, because they know the war will be done. There's no reason you, we, we're not needed. We will uh, step aside. The military can take over this. They all knew it was going to be short. And so no one understands how significant of a decision is going to come out of this one conversation. August 1st, 1914. The lives of 40 million hang in the balance as Kaiser Wilhelm, or William II, and Moltke speak. Barbara Tuckman describes it this way, the Kaiser clutched at the idea of a one-front war. Minutes counted. Already mobilization was rolling inexorably toward the French frontier. The first hostile act, seizure of a railway junction in Luxembourg, whose neutrality the five great powers, including Germany, had guaranteed, was scheduled within an hour. It must be stopped. Stopped at once. But how? Where was Moltke? Moltke had left the palace. An aide was sent off with sirens screaming to intercept him. He was brought back. Can you feel the, the, the tension hanging in the air? So aghast at the thought of his marvelous machinery of mobilization wrenched into reverse, Moltke refused William II's pitch to stop all this point blank. Now on the climactic night of August 1st, Moltke was in no mood for any more of the Kaiser's meddling with serious military matters or with meddling of any kind with the fixed arrangements. To turn around the deployment of a million men from west to east at the very moment of departure would have taken a more iron nerve than Moltke disposed of. Moltke saw a vision of the, deployment of, of, the, of the deployment crumbling apart in confusion. Supplies here, soldiers there, ammunition lost in the middle, companies without officers, divisions without staffs, and those 11,000 trains, each exquisitely scheduled to click over specified tracks at specified intervals of 10 minutes, tangled in a grotesque ruin of the most perfectly planned military movement in history. So this is what's going through Moltke's mind. This is the famous quote from Helmuth von Moltke. Your Majesty, it cannot be done. The deployment of millions cannot be improvised. If Your Majesty insists on leading the whole army to the east, which is towards Russia, it will not be an army ready for battle, but a disorganized mob of armed men with no arrangements for supply. Those arrangements took a whole year of intricate labor to complete, and once settled, it cannot be altered. Once settled, it cannot be altered. Or, the way we would understand it, once set in motion, it cannot be stopped. And I'm going to call that the basis of German failure. The Germans are really going to mess up in World War I. Now, you could translate that also to World War II. And there is a mindset at the crux. Now, remember, I'm German, so I feel like I have some freedom to, to say some of these things. But there is a vulnerability there in their very mindset as a nation that is almost based on fate. It is based on this idea of once this has happened, it defines itself. We have no more say in it. And so this is the basis of German failure. This is what Barbara Tuckman says about it. It cannot be altered. 
That rigid phrase was the basis for every major German mistake, the phrase that launched the invasion of Belgium and the submarine war against the United States, which took place in 1917, which equal, that's what literally is going to bring in the United States into World War I and ultimately crush and lead to their destruction. It's like, uh, cuckoo, right? But in their mindset, this was logic. Once set in motion, it cannot be altered. Now I'm going to say this, the basis of all human failure. When you believe that you are a victim to sin, that the power of Christ has no ability to intervene and interpose a different solution, you become truly a victim to sin. In other words, you are forecasting your own reality. You are self-fulfilling a prophecy. However, there is something that changes your life, and that is to turn and believe that Jesus is greater than any force coming against you. There is nothing greater than the power of the shed blood of Jesus. Nothing. Which means at any moment in your life, when we turn and repent, the power of the Almighty can actually alter from that exact moment forward and change things in a redemptive pattern, in a redemptive fashion. It does not matter. And that's when, when you have been caught up in sin, there's, there's different people all throughout history that have actually said this. You know, when they have been caught up in that, they feel like there is no hope for them now. They feel unworthy of the shed blood. And so as a result, they reject the Spirit's entreaty. They reject the mercy because they feel like they are on a defined course that can no longer be altered. Who's telling them that? I guarantee you it's not God whispering that to them. And as a result, that mentality, which you'll see in various places all throughout history, and in this war, the Tsar of Russia lives with that same attitude. And so certain things are going to happen in Russia that are going to destroy their entire nation based on a similar premise point. It's amazing how deeply based in World War I time period is that notion. And I would say it's not altogether off from our time period either. I'm going to call it moral fatalism. Well, and this is what moral fatalism could sound like if it was speaking inside of you. Well, I guess I just have to carry out this imbecilic, stupid behavior. I have no choice. I am just being run by something other than myself. Now, I've said this to you guys as a group before, but it doesn't make any sense that we would have more faith in the power of sin than we have in the power of Jesus Christ to deliver us from that sin. When you are taking your confidence and putting it in the power of sin, it doesn't lead to good things. And as a result, we need to check that. We need to test where our soul is at. Do we believe that sin and the participation in sin or that once started concept, once the machine is started, that there is no hope, that there is no way of turning? Do we believe that or do we believe that God has the ability to turn us? So, Helmuth von Moltke, it cannot be done. And technically, I should say, your majesty, but then you might, you know, uh, think weird thoughts if I started calling you your majesty. But that's the voice. It cannot be done, O saints of God. You actually think that you could stop this? I have you. The deployment button has already been pushed. You're mine. You know, that's, that's just the voice. 
So this is an interesting twist in our story. There was one guy who didn't take very kindly when he heard the quote from Moltke. And that's the guy that's over all the railroad stuff for the military. He's the one that's in charge of all those boxcars and all those trains. And this is what he said. It could have been done. He didn't like that at all because who did it impugn? It said you, it's basically saying Herman von Stotz could not pull it off. He's like, that's what I'm prepared for. That's my entire job description is to be at the ready for my nation to go west or east. And so when Moltke says it cannot be done, guess what? Who's not in the room? Von Stotz. And so William is only hearing one side of the story. And he believes that this mobilization is an inexorable force. And it cannot be stopped. And guess what? William is going to relent. And of course, the rest is history. It could have been done. And right now in your soul, you need to remember there is another voice. It's called the voice of truth. It's the facts of Scripture. And it doesn't say it could have been done. It says it can be done. It always can be done. It will be done. So Barbara Tuckman says it this way. In fact, it could have been altered. The German general staff, though committed since 1905 to a plan of attack upon France first, had in their files revised each year until 1913 an alternative plan against Russia with all the trains running eastward. There is another option, guys. You do not have to go westward in your soul. There is an eastward movement that God intends you to have. It's been in the files all these years. Or we could say, in the word of God all these years. And you need to believe it. And William needs to call for a second opinion, don't you think? Aren't you disgusted? I mean, you guys just listened to Moltke? What are you thinking? Remember, you're William II in this. Uh, you, just, you just are taking the blame for all of World War I there, aren't you? <clears throat> uh, Barbara Tuckman says this, a question has haunted the annals of history ever since. What ifs, might have, what ifs might have followed if the Germans had gone east in 1914 while remaining on the defensive against France? General von Staub showed that to have turned against Russia was technically possible. But whether it would have been temperamentally possible for the Germans to have refrained from attacking France when Der Tag came is another matter, which is an interesting statement. Something can sometimes be totally possible, but temperamentally, we are not in agreement with the kingdom pattern. We want revenge on France. We want to finish France. France deserves it. I can't. He can. This is a summary of gospel understanding. Remember, there's two. There's an old man condition that I always put over to my left, and then over to my right, I always put the new man condition. And it's a transfer, kingdom of darkness, and then over here to the right, kingdom of light. And we're supposed to transfer from kingdom of darkness to kingdom of light. When we are run by the old system, Moltke's voice controls us. It does, and we listen to it all day long every day. And it tells us what we can and we can't do. And technically, Moltke's correct. It can't be done. You can't stop it. However, Moltke's not telling you to talk with von Staubs. Don't listen to von Staubs. Von Staubs is an old geezer. He doesn't know what he's talking about. That's exactly what the devil says about the Bible. It's like, don't turn there. Don't actually look at that. You see, 
your experience has a very, very heavy weight to it in your soul, and it's high time we actually consult the truth on this. This can be turned. I can't do it in and of myself, but he can do it, and that's how we understand and unpack the gospel. The force of sin is not inexorable to a believer in Christ. It is not unable to be resisted. We actually have been given weapons of warfare to pull down strongholds, to actually resist the devil. When we submit to God, we are given a grace to give a stiff arm to the devil. And even when we've pushed the mobilization button, we can repent and say, Lord, that was wrong for me to push that. I shouldn't be invading neutral Belgium. And we can call it off and turn our troops. This is something that is within our jurisdiction as believers. When we agree with God, we can actually see what the enemy meant for an evil in our life, through our life, turned into a profound picture of redemption and change. Imagine how different history is right now. If we're, you know, the series, it's called Spiritual Lessons from a War that Almost Became the First World War. You know, that, of course, we probably wouldn't even have it, right? It wouldn't have happened. Everything would be different. We'd probably call it sort of, sort of like the German-Austria-Russo War. You know, it would have had a completely different name, and you wouldn't even know about it because it didn't involve us as Americans. It's just one of those weird things like the Franco-Prussian War. It was a huge thing. But who cares is the way most of us as North Americans would say it. It's like that had nothing to do with us, though. But when it's a world war and it suddenly brings in our country, suddenly we get attuned to what's taking place. The old man says it this way, it cannot be done. But you're not ruled by the old man. The old man is crucified with Christ. So the word of God says something different. It can be done, however, in Christ is the key. If you have faith as a mustard seed, nothing will be impossible for you, says Jesus, Matthew 17, 20. Jesus looked at them and said to them, with men, this is impossible. So you could be looking at the deployment of millions uh, to, the, in, to the frontiers near Belgium and, and France. Yeah, with men, this would be impossible to stop. But with God, all things are possible. Jesus looked at them and said, with men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. These are your facts, guys. I don't care what your experience is. God is saying that even though that would be impossible with man, when you agree with me, when you follow me by faith, when you trust my word, I can do it. For with God, nothing will be impossible. The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Now, if you see the video of this, you can see all the scripture references for that. And we're going to finish with this statement, 1 Thessalonians 5.24. I finished a lot of messages with this statement. Faithful is he who calls you, who also will do it. When you're in that moment of decision-making, you have that voice that is the pessimist voice, the voice of doom, the voice of despair, the voice, the gloomy Gus voice. It's like, you can't do that, though. You must Tune your ear to the truth. But what does God say? He is the God of the impossible. His specialty is taking 
impossible situations to say, would you let me have that? You see, for us, there is a calling, a magnetic pull down into a lower region of thought, a lower region of behavior. But there's a banister, and you could call that banister Jesus. You could call that banister the cross. Grabbing a hold of the banister. Instead of having the words of Helmut von Moltke in your head, saying, it cannot be done, it cannot be stopped. Once you got out of bed and started walking down the hall and got to the stop, top of the stairs, you're finished, Eric. You might as well keep going. It's over. Goose step all your way down through into Belgium and create a disaster for your life. You have no choice. It's fate. Or is it? Is it faith? And you grab a hold of Jesus Christ and you say, I know you have something different for me. And you call off your deployment. I am not going in that direction. I know, you got a lot of momentum carrying you down that hall. I mean, with even the goose stepping. I mean, you got a lot going on for it. Stop! Right there. You have grace right now. And you have a decision to make. Do you heed Moltke? Or do you heed the truth? What's ringing in your ears? He will do it. He will save me. He is able. God, you have sufficient for me right now. And I trust you to supply it. Father, I pray that you would stir this reality, that it would catch our pant leg too as we walk by it today, and that we would be transformed by this understanding. I can't. I can't call this off. But I can agree with you that you can turn all of these things for good in my life, starting right at this moment. Lord, there is redemption to be had. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that not just we would find it, but Lord, I pray that our nation would find it. I pray that the church of Jesus Christ would be awakened to find it, even out of our slumberous state. Lord, that we would not just give way and be passive to the work of the enemy in our generation, but that we would resist the way you have commissioned us to do it. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray this. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.